Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, good morning uh, to those of you uh, watching on the live stream, uh, and good morning to those of you watching in the live stream. That's uh, <laughs> a big crowd uh, with this morning, considering the weather and the stuff. But no, we do thank you for those of you who uh, were able to brave the roads and make it here today, too. We, we, we recognize it's kind of a unique Sunday um, in, in that I'm sure a lot of people opted for wisdom uh, and said, you know, what would be the wise thing for me to do in light of my driving skills and my car and, and my family and, and safety and whatever. And so totally honored that. That's, that's uh, zero, zero judgment here. Totally understand that. But we wanted to continue um, our series. And we were going to live stream anyway, so we thought, well, whatever, we'll just be here. And if people are crazy enough to do it, then they're crazy enough to be here. So um, thank you for that. Uh, we are on part three of a four-part series uh, that we are calling Known. It's been a series on community. Um, and it's been a series trying to get to uh, recognizing this, that Jesus had an inspiring way of knowing people. Like when you read, it's, it, it would be hard to not read through the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything we know about Jesus through those kind of four perspectives and not be taken aback by his ability to stop, have conversations and genuinely know people and be known by them. And then inspiring his disciples to do that and having it be characteristic of their uh, way of, of, of doing things and being the church and you're gonna go love people. And if you're gonna love people, you have to know people. You can't love people without knowing people. Um, you can care for them, you can send money their way, but you cannot truly love them until you know them. And so you need to get to know uh, people on the way and then allowing that to be like, okay, if we are an interpretive community every week trying to figure out what it means to live in the way of Jesus, uh, then perhaps in the Tri-Cities in 2023, then we need to be good at knowing people or working on that. And, and we can, you maybe are an extrovert and maybe this is a skill set that you're, you're already pretty good at. And, but even, even in that, you'd be like, you know the value of it. And so you'd say, I get wanting to be even better because there are people who do this better than me. And then there are those of us who, who struggle with, with some of this. Like we, we become more, uh, like COVID was like kind of okay. Like everything's closed. Even today, everything's kind of closed. You're like, there's a party that's like, I love that. Like I just get to be, do my own thing in my own life. And that, that's, that's an appealing thing. And that's completely fine as well as, as a personality. But you, you, you recognize like there's, there's some, probably some areas that, that I could work on when it comes to knowing and being known. Uh, and, and if not, then, you know, the next series will be for you or whatever. But um, we, we've said that Jesus had a unique way of doing it, both with, uh, with specifically in, in week one, a woman who is, is having some medical issues and just feels like, if I could just touch the hem of his cloak. And then he, he, he goes, somebody touched me. But when they touched me, the way that they did it, they need something from me. His awareness of need in a moment where a crowd, I mean, the disciples go, everyone touched you. What are you talking about? And he's like, I know. But there was something there was, that was significant, that was, that was unique, that there was a unique need there that I want to address. And his attention, his ability to shift his mentality towards that 
was a big deal. And then last week, a man who couldn't get in the pool to get healed, and he has this conversation with him, re- opening up to this idea of, do you even want to be healed? Um, it's, been, it's been a powerful thing. So hopefully you're able to kind of, uh, you're here, here because you've been following the conversation that's led up to this point, or, um, or this, what we're going to talk about today interests you and you want to go back, you can always go to the website, uh, eastlakecricities.com slash talks, or we have an app. Some of you are watching this online via the app. Um, just click on the talks page, you can catch up with that. All right, today though, I want to talk, I titled today's talk, The Epidemic of Loneliness. I mentioned at the beginning of the series, this whole series has been um, kind of a launching spot or, or one of the inspirations for this series has been a book that I came across called How to Know a Person by uh, a writer, author named David Brooks. He's uh, a writer for the New York Times, op-ed kind of guy. Uh, written several books that I've always enjoyed. In fact, he's one of those authors that when a book comes out, you just, I don't know, I just buy it or rent it from the library or do something. I know I'm going to read it. And this one, in, in coming into January, knowing I wanted to talk on community in January, this one just kind of fit a lot of different things. And in one of the sections of his books, or, or, or this book in particular, it's, it's uh, I, I want, you know, I, I see you, I, I see you in your struggles and I see you in your strengths. So those are the three breakdowns for the book. And so that's the idea of I see you in your struggles, recognizing that there are people who are struggling and, and the ability to know somebody in the midst of the things that they're going through and what it means to love them in that way and wh- what it means to... Um, yeah, not, not treat them as a, as a number, as a category, but as, as a person and hearing their story and that uh, is a big deal. And so he kicks off the, the, the chapter of this going through some pretty sobering statistics that I wanna walk through a few of them uh, with you. And it reminds me of, um, if you've ever opened a Harper's uh, magazine, there's the first page is called By the Numbers. And it's just like a, this week in America, you know, 47%, 37%, just a bunch of random facts to kind of get you in the mindset. And then they go into the kind of the literature about that. So I wanna do that with us today centered around the idea of loneliness and community and the struggles that we have. If you see people in their struggles, this is perhaps a little bit about what they're going for. So I'm going to go through them too fast for you to write them down, but if you want them, they're on the notes page um, on, the, on the tab within the app as well. Uh, and here's where we'll start. It's, I know it's dark and it's whatever, but 33%, the rise of suicide rates in the U.S. between 1999 and 2019. In the, de- in the, in the t- two years or two decades between those 1999 and 2019, 33% rise uh, in suicide rates. 37%, the percentage of teens who reported persistent, that's the key word there, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, a rise in 13% just in the last decade alone. 33%, uh, the increase in the number of Americans without a romantic partner. 36% uh, of Americans who feel lonely frequently or almost all of the time. Represented um, uh, 61% of young adults marked that box and 51% of young moms said frequently or all of the time, I feel lonely. 400% or four times an increase in the number of people who said they have no close friends. This is a study that was concluded in 2019. So uh, taken between uh, two, uh, 2009 and 2019, in that decade, uh, 400% increase in the people who said they have no close friends. Six and a half hours per week, time spent with friends on an average U.S. American in 2013. By 2019, that number drops to four. Uh, and then you guys know how COVID worked. And then out of that though, in 2021, as the world is reemerging and we felt the pain of of solitary confinement and we come out and we are opening ourselves back up to the world and, and getting off the Zooms, you know, all the stuff and into real life people again. 
2.75 hours per week is the time spent the average American with their friends in 2021, represented a 58% decline from the beginning. And then this one's 50% or greater than 50%, the increase of people who put themselves in the lowest happiness category in 2018 compared with just uh, 30 years prior. Greater than 50% in, the, in a spectrum or a box, check a box, where do you find yourself? Lowest possible happiness category. It, it's pretty clear. And, you, and I, don't, I doubt that none of these statistics are surprising in the fact, they might be surprising in the extremeness of them, but um, if I were to ask you, is this generally true? Is this a general trajectory that you feel, that you see in your workplace, you're a teacher in a school district, you do something with, you know, with, with people, with social services or something like that? And you would say, that this, this feels true. Or, or you read the news enough or books enough to kind of go, this isn't like out of left field. Where'd you get these sources? Or I'd like to check those facts or whatever. Like there's a general sense in which you go, yeah, I mean, that sounds kind of about right. As sad as it feels and as sad as it is. And when we can, you know, we can put the category on how oh, COVID was terrible for this. But the reality is when you think about it, when you kind of look at it, the numbers in, in their way, COVID was an accelerator for some problem. A lot of these numbers come pre-COVID. Like we had had a problem before, yes, Boxing people in and doing that made it made it kind of extreme and accelerated a little bit more. But come on, guys, this has been a struggle for a while. It feels like the thing that we need most is healthy relationships, and yet the thing that we seem to suck at the most is healthy relationships. So what we need the most, we struggle with, and it's a, this terrible cyclical pattern that it, that it's that it's 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 uh, awful in terms of ruinous and, and self reinforcing. Because social disconnection warps our mind. People who are lonely and unseen or feel lonely and unseen become suspicious. In relationships that should be categorized by trust, we replace trust with suspicion. I don't think they're in it for the right motives. I don't think that what they said is what they believe. I don't think they actually like being around me. I don't think they actually invited me, but the text message didn't go through. I'm so sorry. I begin to be skeptical of everything that happens in this. I play these games in my mind. I create this alternate reality for myself, it becomes more and more self-isolating and filled with self-loathing and doubt and self-delusional worlds. And we know we have a problem. And one of the ways that I metric what the world is going through and how we need help is by the book selection at Costco. I don't know about you, but um, Costco sells books. You know that. Um, they have one table that they dedicate to to these books, but it's a big table. And it's one of my favorite places to stop by in at Costco because Costco only sells books that sell well. Have you noticed that? Like, if you want a book that exists, go to Barnes and Noble or go to your mid-Columbia libraries. If you want a book that like the cultural, you know, epoch of the times, or this is the zeitgeist of the age, go to Costco. These are the, those, they, they, they stock in massive quantities and then you better buy it today because it's probably gone tomorrow. That's how these things work. And, and whether you like it or not, it oftentimes I think is regionally focused as well. Uh, based on you know what, what's out there, but you, you criticize Costco. This is lame selection. They're just trying to pump through inventory, man. That's that's their goal in, in this thing. So they're they're selling what people are buying. And so what do you see at Costco? You see a lot of uh, Vince Flynn and uh, Clive whatever Clive Clussell or whatever his name is, and James Patterson. You see a bunch of novels about spy things. You see it books on 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 World War II because those ones all sell really really well. But then what else do you see? Tons of books on self healing. Tons of books on 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 working on yourself or or um, like we, we like it's it's a massive like the self help help category is is big proportionately to what we see at other bookstores, the self-help section at Costco is a lot bigger, right? Um, because that's what we're buying, because we know we have a problem. 
We know we struggle at this. We know that the thing that we need the most are healthy relationships. And it's the thing that we suck at the most. The pain, the most pain that we go through, and we can, we can struggle, we can process through physical pain or chronic pain. We can struggle through um, uh, 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 like a financial hurdle or, or an accident or something like that. But it's like these, it's the relational pain. It's the betrayal of a close friend. It's the divorce that went sour. It's the marriage relationship that didn't work. Or the, the romantic thing, he was the one for sure. And now it's not there. That we just like, we struggle with this. We, we can't seem to let this go. We have these friends who go, who try and talk us through and walk us through. And this one just takes longer. It's just, and, and, there's more, and there's more triggers for us. There's more things that kind of set us off. The things that we have to kind of work through and think through. It's a struggle. It's a, it's a, a beast of a thing. And loneliness then can oftentimes lead to meanness as we've seen. Because pain that isn't transformed is transmitted that we, if we refuse or don't, aren't, don't have the ability to transform our pain and to kind of like inspire us and make us better and learn from it and learn from our mistakes, and what we do is we transmit it to other things and other people and we become awful to be around. Hate crimes are at their peak levels. Uh, people are quitting in the service sector all the time. They're just like, I, I, people are entitled now. It's so hard to deal with people. We never dealt with this 20 years ago, 15 years ago. What we see are people who just feel like Every, the world is out to get them. And so they get better get at them first or something like that. And we're like, I, I'm, I, I don't get paid enough to deal with this. I'm out. Talk to, talk to people in the medical industry, in the, in the medical services industry. It's tough. It's incredibly tough right now to do this in this, in this way. And then one of the ones that kind of stood out in a big way for me was this, uh, that, that when I read it, I was like, oh man, I know that I feel like that's true. That was an insight that I hadn't thought of before. Seven times. Lonely people are seven times more likely than non-lonely people to say that they are active in politics. For people who feel disrespected and unseen, politics is a seductive form of social therapy. And so if you felt like I've felt like politics has gotten more divisive, more ubiquitous, more inescapable, that you just can't go anywhere or do anything or be a part of anything without politics getting involved in it, even within a church. And that's one of the critiques oftentimes of the church is, oh my gosh, now we're into politics. And you're like, I, I want this, I want that to be separate. That's a, it's fine that it's an area of my life that I, I you know, every, every first uh, Tuesday or second Tuesday in November, I got to kind of, you know, go vote and do my thing. But like, it just becomes everywhere at all times and, and brings out the worst oftentimes uh, in people in this way. And Brooks mentions this and he says, the problem with politics or here's what it seems to offer. Why, why is there such this like, why is this the correlation between increased loneliness and an increased participation or a higher value placed on politics? Because politics seem to offer a comprehensive moral landscape, meaning this, this, when I associate with this group of people with that view of the world, then life makes sense for me. Then, then I'm not sure what I believe about everything, but then I see who I follow and they say I should vote this way about that. Okay, now I have an opinion on how this should operate. It's an uneducated, it's whatever, but it's, it's, this is what I do. It's comprehensive. It's full, this is what we vote for, right? It's a sense of belonging. No question that this, the rise of, I now have a tribe. I have people who uh, are like me in an arena of moral action. I have, an, I have a way of, it, through my votes, making a difference in the world or feeling like I have a difference in the world or presenting or showing up at a, at a protest or writing a, a letter to my congresswoman or something like that. The human need to self-present is 
powerful. Now, this isn't a series on social ills that are affecting America right now and how to solve them. Please, we have 30 minutes of a talk and I'm an idiot, so that's not going to happen. We're not going to solve anything in that way. Um, this is by far and above a, a, a church, and so there's an angle that we have to take with this. But uh, what I what I I just want to bring up why I feel like this topic in this series is important. I mean, as a, as a human, even if you're not religious, something worthwhile is developing an art of seeing others and being deeply seen. If we want to avoid this, if we want to do better at this, if we want to be better people and a better uh, uh, presence in our community, then like, regardless of what you believe about Jesus and the story that I'm going to go into in a minute, like this should be a value to be like, yeah, I need to do better at this. But as a Christian, if you go on that, and if, 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 if you are the one that kind of identifies and go, I, I'm the reason that I come here is I'm trying to put myself in a position to weekly be challenged by a way of doing life that Jesus talks about that's gonna change the way I do it. Then as a Christian, it's hard to read through the gospels and not be inspired regardless of our religious affiliation by Jesus' ability to know and to be known by people. He had a way of knowing them. In the case, the first two weeks made it seem easy because I, I can understand, I walked away from the first two parts of the series going um, like maybe like this whole, I, I'm presenting it like this is, Guys, it's, if you've ever watched like a YouTube video of somebody changing the alternator in your car, you're like, you walk away inspired. You're like, I think I could change my car in seven minutes. I think I could change the alternator in my car in seven minutes. Like $500 in tools and six hours later, you're like paying somebody to do it for you again, right? So that's how uh, that sort of works. Um, you'd say in a perfect world, this is how it would work, but I, this isn't a perfect world. We don't live with perfect people. We're not perfect people in this way. These numbers are big enough that we just walk through to be represented by a lot of people in this room that we struggle with this, which is what leads Brooks in the conclusion to say this. Why over the past two decades have we seen this epidemic of loneliness and meanness? This breakdown in social fabric? We can all point to some contributing factors, right? You, you had a basis of, of who's, the, who's the, the villain in this. Social media can be the villain. Widening inequality can be a villain. Declining participation in community life. Declining church attendance rising populism and bigotry, vicious demagoguery from our media and political elites. And he goes on to say, I agree that these factors have all contributed to produce what we're enduring, but the years have gone by, as years have come by, I have increasingly fixated on what I see as deeper cause of our social and relational crisis. Our problem, I believe, is fundamentally moral. And this was supposed to be me communicating to the tech team, bold as a society, and they were gonna bold this, but... Um, you know, we had some call outs today, as you can kind of imagine, and Jared's doing his best back there. So like, it's, that's, it's on me. So I'll read it boldly. How does that sound? Does that make sense? All right. As a society, we have failed to teach the skills and cultivate the inclination to treat each other with kindness, generosity, and respect. Even if they don't look like us, even if they don't vote like us, the, the problem that we have is we failed to learn or failed to be taught or failed to hear what it means to be, have an inclination to treat each other with kindness, generosity, and respect. It's all really like, okay, maybe that does name part of the problem for me. So uh, if you're coming at this from kind of a, like a, a non-religious thing, then you can be like, that's enough like, and to be like, okay, well, we need to talk about moral foundations and, and who does this? Is it the responsibility of uh, the educational system? Is it responsibility of the parents? Is there a, co a combination? Is it responsibility of the government in some way? Is it the churches? Is it nonprofits in the community? Is it the Boys and Girls Club? Who's, who's teaching the next generation to be moral, 
to value kindness, generosity, and charity uh, above like being right or achievement-based stuff or merit-based stuff? Like how, how, do we, how do we say all that's kind of important, but, but what's, what's critical, what's, what's core is that we definitely get this. That's a great question to ask, but not the context of what we're doing today. For us today, because it's a church and because we're, we, we, uh, we wanna take a look at what Jesus had to kind of inspire us, I wanna look at a story called the Confession of Peter that takes place in Matthew chapter um, 16. And it takes place in a couple other places too. I've mentioned uh, before that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospel stories. They teach us about the person, the teaching of, uh, in the, of Jesus. Everything that we know about Jesus comes from the perspective of them. And then Paul, who kind of wrote a little bit about interpreting that for, for his context within the churches. But in terms of historical, where did he go? What did he do? Who did he talk to? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the first three. They're known as the synoptic gospels, meaning they see things in the similar way. Their timeline was the same. What Jesus said was oftentimes similar. And in this sense, the confession of Peter shows up almost word for word, uh, verbatim in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9. Matthew goes a little bit deeper into a few conversations, so we'll spend our time there. And John just decides not to mention it for whatever reason uh, in his own way. But the context is that uh, Jesus takes his disciples uh, up to a hill and it says he's overlooking a city called Caesarea Philippi and he's about to have a conversation. Now, if you've ever uh, want to have a, like a really good conversation with your partner or your, your kid and you want to talk about deep things in life. You take them oftentimes somewhere special, right? You do something or, or when you're somewhere special, you have conversations that are a little bit more deeper than just surface level, right? So you hike to the top of Badger and then you go, look at this beautiful landscape. Isn't the Tri-Cities, when you're, when you're down, it's just dark and, du- and dusty and dirty and whatever. But up here, it looks like there's a river going through it. Can you see all that? It's beautiful. Let's talk, you know, whatever. Or you go to, you go to New York or you go, to some, you go on a hike up in the Cascades or something. You see be, these big waterfalls. And it's just like, there's an emotional thing there, all right? Um, so we know that context uh, about where we're at can like, also provide explanation for what's talked about in that moment. I think that's true for here. Caesarea Philippi is a small town uh, that was kind of late in development. Um, uh, The backstory is this, Um, King Herod, shows up in the the story of Jesus as the king of the time who is over Jerusalem and Judea. He is the puppet king representing the nation of Israel. Um, Rome is ultimately in charge, but Rome is a long ways away. And the further away from Rome that you get, the more likely that the emperor in Rome uh, lets a local person lead in this context. And as long as you paid your taxes and and kept control of everything, you could kind of continue to lead as a puppet king. You're the king of the Jews. Sure, call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But Rome is still top and I'm still the emperor, right? Uh, and so Herod is over that. Herod's the one who, when the, uh, when the Magi come and they're like, there's a Messiah that's been born. He's like, tell me where he's from. I wanna you know, celebrate him. But really he's trying to kill him. When they leave, he, he decides, he issues a decree. We're gonna kill all the babies that are within a, a year or two uh, of, of being born just to kind of make sure that no challenge to my kingship, no, con, you know, no issues with the, the people and uprisings and all that kind of stuff. So that's King Herod. We know from this story that, or from, from earlier, that King Herod dies and eventually his, uh, his heirs, his sons, uh, get divisions of the kingdom, 
He's got about six sons, but it sounds like maybe a couple of them had already died or weren't interested. So basically there were three of his sons who got sections of his area trying to uh, still um, like still operate as, uh, as Herod's kind of, you know, uh, descendants and, and, and still don't worry, Rome, it's okay. We got this under control. Even though dad's not here, we're doing just fine, right? And so as, as you can imagine, if you're an oldest child, the oldest child got the first pick of where he wanted. He took the land with near the, nearest to the water in the most fertile section. And then it kind of went down. And what we're dealing with in Caesarea Philippi is from land currently operated in this story by Philip the Tetrarch, the youngest son. And if you're a youngest child of a family, especially, you know, if you have a lot of kids, you know what that's like. You get all hand-me-downs. You never had anything new in your life. Every boot you've ever owned, ski boot, you know, all, all the gear, all the stuff, this was worn by three, you're three kids down. There's holes everywhere. This, but you're just making it work. You're just trying to survive. That's how this worked. Caesarea Philippi was a nothing town. There was another town called Caesarea Maritime, which was far closer to the sea, which was nice. Both of these towns were named by these sons to try and save face or make it good or communicate, don't worry about us. We're still very subjected to Rome. We still worship you. You're still the guy. You're still in charge. We're just here. We're gonna, we're, in fact, we're gonna name a city after you. Here's Caesarea Philippi. By the way, garbage town. If the emperor of Rome had ever showed up, he'd have been like, you name this after me. Could you name it something else? I don't even want this town associated with me. That's what Caesarea Philippi is looking like. It reeks of desperation. That's what it looks like. It's almost like he's trying to do something and you've, you've seen people try too hard. And we notice it most when it comes to social media, right? People try to make things go viral and it reeks of desperation. You're like, this is so cheesy and so lame. Just stop doing that. Like, it's so dumb. Gosh, unfollow, right? Block, whatever the case may be. Um, I'll give you an, an example. Uh, this week, I came across a, a, a tweet that went viral this week. All right? This is from some guy randomly who said, sorry, babe, I can't come over tonight. Me and the boys are naming obscure wide receivers in the group chat again, right? Which basically then started guys like me to be like, naming off all of these wide receivers in football who we've all kind of generally forgot about who are not like Hall of Fame players. But like when you say the name, you're like, oh yeah, I remember him. He used to play for the Cleveland Brown. That's kind of funny, right? So look at like over and over again, thousands and thousands of 32 million views is what it eventually got. And a couple of those were me going back to it. Me like, I, I remember another one. I got another one, Sidney Rice. Remember Sidney Rice? Played for the Seahawks for a while. Yeah, because I know some of you are going, why would you waste your time doing this? And I say, why not Joe Juravicious? That's a pretty good name. You know what I mean? Like that, if you guys remember that guy, right? So like this, this thing went crazy this week. If you're a sports guy like me, and I just lost like three to five of you, three to five of you pulled out your phones right now and are just like, all right, I got a, I got a few he hasn't named yet. But the, 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 this is, this is kind of, this goes crazy. And then what happens is if you're not participating in this, what I saw are some, some attempted spinoffs that never work. All right, now let's name place kickers. And everybody's like, lame. Let's name quarterbacks, lame. Lesson, it's something about being original that you're not, when you do this, he didn't sound desperate. Then you come back later and you're like, that feels desperate. It's why you don't buy knockoff Stanley Cups. You pay a premium for those things, don't you? I don't want the knockoff. That's trying too hard. You're trying to be a Stanley. We see it. It's not working, Walmart. Sorry. That's what this is. When, when it reeks of desperation, we don't want any part of it. So Jesus is standing over a city that kind of reeks a little bit of desperation. And with that context in mind, listen to the question that he asks his disciples, knowing that that's there. Who do people say that I am? 
Do they think that I reek of desperation? Does it feel forced? Everything about Caesarea Philippi feels a little bit forced. Like it doesn't quite belong. And it's like, ah, I mean, do people see me as a Jewish guy trying to overreach, trying to get out of my social circle? What's the vibe? What's What's the feeling? And I don't think, I don't, to be clear, I don't think Jesus is working through insecurities to be like, are people like, do they not like me? I don't think he cares what people think about that. But I do think when he's talking with them, with his disciples, the identity portion of what are people saying about me? Does it feel like a reach? Does it feel like a forced thing? Does it feel like a whatever? It's a big deal because his disciples then go, well, I mean, some people are like Elijah, maybe like Moses, like this new Abraham, new, new something. Like you're something there. People really aren't sure what you are, but they are impressed. And they do think that there's something here. I don't know what's there, but something is there. And then Jesus follows up with the question of who do you think that I am? What about you? And Peter takes the, the, uh, the lead in kind of announcing whether it's for the group or for himself, but probably because they kind of saw him as an internal leader within the disciples. You are the Messiah. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the one that our nation, we have stories that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation, hoping for, longing for someone to come and fix all of this. It's gonna be political. It's gonna be military. It's gonna be everything. Everything is involved in this Messiah. You are, we think, we think you're the solution. We think you're the missing piece. You're the, the cornerstone. You're the, you're the thing that's gonna kick everything off, that everything has changed the result of your presence here. You are the Messiah. And in Matthew's version, it says the son of the living God. In fact, Matthew's gonna go even deeper into all of this. And in Matthew's version, then Jesus turns the conversation back on Peter and says, what you've said is true. And I'm telling you, you didn't, you're not saying this because somebody else told you to say this. You're not regurgitating somebody else's opinion. And, and, and this, is, this is, God gave this to you. Like, this is amazing. That quote right there, that idea. I'm gonna build my church on that idea and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. What's being built? What's being built in this moment? The idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Because if he's the Messiah, then everything around, I mean, that's a game changer. Then everything, everything about it is worth building around. When you're the Messiah, that becomes, you're not one of many teachers who are pretty good to listen to and like, you know, pattern your life a little bit. Take piece, bits and pieces everywhere uh, about this and figure out, like, take what you like, spit out the bones, that kind of thing. If you're the Messiah, then all bets are off. Like there's, there's a, I, I, I just got to take this unfiltered in this way. And the church then, from that point on is gonna be built on what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? And Jesus tells him the church, the assembly, the called out ones, not the building, the, the whole, a group of people are going to meet together. They're gonna to spend time with one another. They're gonna encourage one another and towards looking at it and asking themselves the question, what does it mean to me in my life if Jesus is the Messiah? How does my life change? What do I do differently? How do I act differently? How do I live with generosity differently? How do I serve differently? How do I, um, how do I look at my self-reliance differently? How do I understand grace and truth? How does all of those things happen for me? And then Jesus, as a result of that, says, don't tell anybody about any of this. 
to which they didn't until they wrote their stories out. And then eventually it came to, but then I love this in chapter 16, verse 21 through 26. It says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is when he begins to get more explicit about why he's here and what's there, what the future entails with this. Listen, guys, now that we've established this Messiah thing, I'm telling you, things are gonna get dark. They're gonna get hairy. The road is gonna get a lot rockier. It's been pretty cool to be along the ride so far, right? I'm healing people, I'm feeding people. If you're, if you're, if you're out there healing feed people and, and feeding people, people like being around you. People like you when you provide things for them. But there's gonna come a shift here now. Like following me is gonna look a little bit different. We're gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna die and on the third day be raised to new life. And I don't even think in that moment they go, oh, Easter. Like they wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> we, we read that and go, oh, that's Easter. I know what he's talking about. This, that would have been so far out of bounds for them. And the reason we know it's so far out of bounds is because look how Peter responds. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. You can't talk like that. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And part of it's like maybe him being, you know, machismo, bravado, like we're gonna never let this kind of stuff happen to you. But also I think Peter's like kind of, it says he's rebuking him. What do you mean rebuke? You can't talk like that. Don't talk like that. And part of it perhaps, and I think Jesus sees through this, is self-preservation, Peter's like, I left a lot to come follow you. And it's been a pretty good ride. Don't screw it up for me, man. I left the family business for this. But I think also part of it is him thinking he's gonna be the hero in Jesus' story. Like Jesus went through a depressed period, but then I was able to like call him out of it. You know what I mean? I was able to like inspire him through this. You ever had a friend come over? You're going through a dark time and you're like, did you just come over? Can we just hang out? You, me and Ben and Jerry. And we, we just talk through some things. And halfway through you explaining your situation, they go, oh man, I know. I had that too. And they begin to go in their situation. You're like, I'm, we're talking about me real quick. Or, or worse, they begin to offer you advice without you hearing the whole, I didn't call you here to have you offer me advice. Now, if I get to asking for it, then that's one thing. But usually I'm asking for it just out of like, I, I feel like I have to, but I don't really need your advice. I just need you to hear what I'm going through. I need you to know me as a person because I want you to love me and it's impossible to love without knowing somebody. But somebody in their situation thinks, I know what I can do. I can inspire them with great speech. You can do this. Just break up with him. He's an idiot, right? And you're like, I don't need your advice. I just want you to hear me out. And on Jesus' scenario, with, 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 with where he's at, with no, what, knowing what he wants to do, and this is the whole reason why he came, and knowing that you're operating, Peter, on limited information, you don't even know what you're talking about. Let me guide you into this. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, aka, if you go through with this, this is bad news for me. You're thinking selfishly about this whole thing. You couch it in terms that makes me feel like, no, man, you can do this. This is all about you. But I see through that veneer and that facade, you're concerned about self-preservation. So let me speak about self-preservation real quick. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. And what good will it be for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? 
what good would it be to gain the entire world and lose yourself in the process? Or in the way that we look at oftentimes, you know, you take this job, you do this thing and you lose your marriage and you lose your family in the process. We, we, that's the factors that we kind of lean it through. We see that through this. Jesus is having this difficult conversation with Peter about this. And what's he doing? What's he doing in this? What is this conversation centered around? I think it comes back to that idea of morality, that he's guiding Peter into this level of different morality, trying to teach him how to be a kinder, better person, teaching them a couple of things. Because Brooks comments at the end in his, I'll save you 30 bucks and six hours of your time. At the, end of, at the end of that section in the book, he goes, here's how we teach morality. We remind people that self-restraint is important and valuable that there's value in self-restraint or restraining our own personal selfishness, finding a different purpose and learning basic social and emotional skills. How are we gonna solve these problems? How are we gonna make these numbers not just continue to kind of go downhill? How can we be something that pushes back against the tide? How can we be a light in our community, in our family, in our workplace, in our something, in, in whatever context that we find ourselves in? We learn to restrain our own personal selfishness to find a bigger identity than just ourselves, a find a bigger thing, a bigger purpose to be a part of. And we never stop learning and getting better at our social and our emotional skills. That was his advice. And as I read through that, I couldn't help but think about Jesus in his conversation with Peter. What's he doing? He looks at Peter and goes, even when you're offering your advice, you're doing out of selfish motives. Listen, man, you gotta learn the path towards self-actualization, the path towards self-help isn't through pursuing that, but for pursuing something else, the idea of self-denial. The message of Christianity is one that the best way to self-operate in self-help is to experience self-denial. I know it sounds backwards and it sounds opposite and it's a weird paradox, but the, the invitation that Jesus has to him and to over and over again, even when he goes and preaches to everybody else is, listen, to live as with Christ is to die to self. Whoever wants to be my disciple denies themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life loses it. Whoever loses their life will f- eventually will find it. And what good is it if you gain the whole world, but lose that piece of it? Peter's or Jesus' invitation to Peter is, listen, I'm inviting you into a different way of doing things. I know out there, I know everywhere else you hear is about finding yourself and working on yourself and doing yourself. And selfishness is is a prize. You can't trust anybody else. The only person you can trust is myself. He goes, retrain your selfishness. Retrain it. To me, that's not the way to do it. To understand that the path towards self-discovery starts with our own selflessness to find an ultimate purpose. That Jesus looks at Peter as this small response towards saying, I just, I'm taking a risk, but I think you're the Messiah. Peter, it's on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and you're gonna be the one that's gonna lead it. And the things that you say are gonna be keys to the kingdom of heaven, that the way that the church decides what's good and what's not good, it's gonna be, it's gonna be have an eternal effect. Like there's the weight of what you're doing, the weight of what you said and now your responsibilities. And the fact that you, Peter, are gonna go on to be, as we know, the, the, the CEO of the church. 
He, he, he didn't have really necessarily a, like a specific church in like Ephesus or Philippi, what we see like with Paul. He, Peter was the overall CEO of the church. And what we have in our New Testament are two letters that Paul wrote to the capital C church, kind of like a state of the union sort of thing for where we're at as a church. And we know we're going through suffering, but we can en- embrace that suffering because of who it means uh, th- that we're standing for and what our identity is, is focused on. His two letters are powerful and impactful, but only because Peter went through a process where he, he was originally using this like weird religious language for his own selfish desires, but he moved beyond that. He found a bigger purpose in himself and no doubt began to work on his social and emotional skills and embrace the morality, the invitation to a different morality to make Peter more generous, more kind, more practical, more charitable, more something. And the invitation then as I read it and as you read it is to us as well, that we find ourselves not like Jesus in this moment, as much as we try and be like it, but far more like Peter. Jumping into conversations, opinionated when we have opinions and, and, and overstepping our boundaries, not listening, not understanding. But may we, may we respond when he says, who do you think that I am? I don't know. I think you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I think that there's something there. And I think that I should spend time regularly comparing my way of doing things and the things that I value to the way that you do things and the things that you value. And you say you value this idea of whoever loses their life for for my sake will find it. And that doesn't make a lot of sense for me in my world because everything else I read is is opposite of that. But Jesus invites us to that and says, try this on for size, see if it fits, see if you like it. See See if later on, this means more that you see more results, that this fits, uh, that, that, that this works better, that this produces better results than your way of doing things. And if it doesn't, there's gonna be all kinds of cool things for yourself to be like, I'm gonna self-actualize. I'm gonna take things in my own way. I'm gonna operate with a level of selfishness. The only person I can trust is myself. I can do this. I don't need anybody's help in the process. Okay, that's one way of doing life. See how it gets, see how far it gets you. See if you like it. But if you don't, here's another way of doing it. And perhaps this provides some answers for us, for the world and the numbers that we oftentimes experience, that we just saw. How are we doing without it? <laughs> Struggle bus, man. But may we respond to the invitation. May we be like Peter, who took this and did great things as a result of it. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us discern that truth for us that you would help us see through the, the mess that's out there. Everybody's offering opinions on how to heal ourselves and, and get, get better quickly and, and read this and buy this and wear this and do this, whatever. And your invitation is simple. Lose ourselves to find ourselves. Lose ourselves for the sake of you to find ourselves, to find a bigger purpose in ourselves, to see a bigger picture, to replace suspicion with trust, to love. And in order to love, we must know. And so we must work on that, which we know, to know others and to be known by them. I think all of that fits in this puzzle. May we be the type of people who figure out what that means for us in our current context. Give us the courage to do something about it this week. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.